everybody, and welcome to another episode of COVID with Alliant. I'm Christine <laughs> Blanco. I am the Director of Employee Benefits Compliance here at Alliant, and with me is Diana Craig. Hey, everyone. Also a compliance attorney here at Alliant Employee Benefits. And so we are here again today as we go into what I think is week three of sort of acute COVID whatever this was is happening. Uh, <laughs> it feels like week 100 to me. Well, exactly. As I think we've said in other podcasts, time seems to warp and bend in the world of coronavirus, and not in a funny way, um, but here we are. And so today we wanted to talk about um, a lot of things happened last week. We expect a, a number of things to happen again next week, but the, uh, the CARES Act, otherwise known as the Stimulus Package, passed and there is a flurry of activity from the DOL. So essentially last Wednesday, the Senate passed the CARES Act. And, you know, we were following it really closely, waiting for the text to come out so we could see how our clients would be impacted. Um, we had a, a little bit of, they had a little bit of fussing there up in Congress on Capitol Hill for a while. And then the House passed it um, on Friday and the president signed it. I mean, it, it, again, at breakneck speed, really, um, all things considered. Um, but ultimately, we wanted to see, you know, we didn't know what to expect in that. There were a lot of possibilities. And, and ultimately, there's not a ton of, of really substantial provisions directly impacting employers. But there are a few key items, and we'll talk about those. Well, and I just wanted to add, I, I felt pretty relieved when I finally saw the text of the CARES Act kind of as passed because over the weekend prior to passage, the House leaked a bill that had way broader um provisions that would definitely have impacted employers. It even had like a sneaky COBRA subsidy. So if anybody remembers ARA, that was something I was worried about and watching closely. Right. It was uh, Pelosi's 1,400-page bill out there. And yeah, ex exactly. Those of us who remember ARA, and we have been doing this since dinosaurs rode <laughs> the earth again. So at any rate, uh, so let's go through some of the key provision of the CARES Act. And again, this is really, if you want to just sort of you know, pull back. It is a stimulus package. So there are a number of provisions in here that are sort of not relevant, directly relevant to our our particular discussion today, but that, it, you know, hopefully will have significant impact um, on the economy and businesses um, as we sort of continue to chart this territory. So there are a number of unemployment provisions. So there's, you know, significant changes to unemployment insurance that expands the eligibility and generally will increase benefits to provide almost full wage replacement for um, the bottom, sort of the, the first 50% of wage earners. And so that's really, you know, what people are focusing on. As an employer, that's going to have sort of tangential impact on you, right? So to the extent that you may be furloughing employees um, with the hopes that you can bring them back, that all probably folds into some of your decision-making process. But in terms of you as an employer, that's really a tertiary um, impact. Uh, you shouldn't have to administer um, any coordination. I would say that's the one takeaway is we were wondering whether they were going to include coordination uh, provisions in there. And they were very, very clear that if you're working at all or if you're on any other paid leaves, that you wouldn't be eligible for unemployment insurance, which was actually a, a huge relief that they were proactive about um, that coordination provision. 
And so another key component here is uh, the payroll tax credits designed to reimburse employers for the new paid FEMLA provisions and sick leave under the Families First Coronavirus Act, which we're going to talk to you about ad nauseum in a couple <laughs> minutes. Um, there's a couple notes there that are key. It provides that employers do not need to make the deposits they usually make, whether those are weekly or monthly, of their payroll taxes in advance. Um, of that quarterly deadline to file nine, Form 941. Remember, the tax credit will come by way of your quarterly taxes, and we did some math for you on one of our prior podcasts, and I don't like to do math on, on off the cuff. So Certainly not, not live, right? right? Now. Um, but essentially, it provides some relief there. And then what I also find really interesting and I'm waiting to see is that the secretary um, of IRS, or Treasury rather, will issue forms and instructions to allow for the advanced payments of anticipated premium tax credits, which could feel more like a cash-in-hand sort of situation, right? Yeah, I thought that was really, really huge because mm-hmm. just asking employers to kind of delay, delay, delay on getting that back is just not feasible. It's not, and it's not, again, it's it's relief, but again, it's like you said, it's a Barnes & Noble gift card when I really just, you know... <laughs> want to go buy milk. So um, we'll wait to see what that looks like. I mean, there's this idea, too. It's not totally unfamiliar. In the uh, in the exchanges, there are advanced premium tax credits for individuals. So again, so that they're not really out of pocket and then pay back. So we'll see what that looks like. Um, Diana, you want to talk about some of the other provisions? Yeah. And again, just that I felt pretty relieved that the CARES Act, um, it was really clarifying amendments to the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. There wasn't anything... A massive in there. Um, and then just a lot of sort of clarifications. And the one that really caught my eye was on the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, FEMLA expansion. So that was, again, um, 12 weeks of leave. Uh, if you have been employed for an employer for 30 days, the employer is a private employer with fewer than 500 employees. Um, and it's just for school closures. It's if you're unable to work as a result of a COVID-related school closure or caregivers not available, you get the idea. But the clarification they provided was basically that that 30-day eligibility provision is going to be waived if an employee was laid off on or after March 1st. Prior to the layoff, the employee had worked for the employer for 60 days, and then the employer is later rehired. So it's basically this kind of break in service Mm -hmm. uh, forgiveness provision. So I thought that was a really good add. Um, and one of the other ones, or actually there were two other ones I just, I got a, I, 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 I'm, the one that I don't want you to talk about. No, (laughs) we all have our favorites. Yeah. Uh, but so these were interesting and it's a, um, CARES Act coronavirus HIPAA provision and there's nothing substantive in there, but they're directing HHS to issue guidance on sharing of PHI, um, basically related to kind of global pandemic reasons, and that's within 180 days from enactment. Yeah, and so six months down, down, you know. Down I will the road. be watching six months from now <laughs> for that guidance. Well, and I actually think this is an interesting topic because we had a lot of questions in the beginning, and I think even um, you know as we deal with us as an organization. Um, and, and sort of really tiptoeing around HIPAA, I always say HIPAA has a really, people think it has a really far reach. It's, it's fairly prescriptive in terms of its application. And there's some provisions in HIPAA that allow um, certain disclosures to public health agencies, but not necessarily disclosures only just related to a public health 
emergency. Well, and let's always remember, HIPAA applies to protected Mm -hmm. health information created, um, received, or maintained by the group health plan. Right. Not the employer. Right, exactly. And also, if somebody's going through the hall saying, I have COVID, as it turns out, that's not PHI. (laughs) So, I mean, not that anyone's I'm hoping that's not happening at any of your workplaces. Uh, Let me hit one more that I thought was super interesting, um, and then I'm going to turn it over to you for some super exciting talk about telemed. Okay, just really quick on ERISA deadlines. We were getting asked about, well, what about 5,500 filings? What about SARS? What about all of these things under ERISA? I don't think you can say SAR anymore. You have to say SAR. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You're right. Good catch, Chris. But so, again, we don't have relief here, but the CARES Act gives the Secretary of Labor the authority to delay certain ERISA deadlines in the event of a public health emergency. So authority is given, mm-hmm. no action as of yet. Yeah, and I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and don't think that people are totally wringing their hands over their 5,500 filing deadlines, but maybe, and hopefully there's going to be some relief, relief there. Um, okay, so HSAs and telemedicine. This one is pretty big. We've had IRS guidance uh, prior to this, but this The CARES Act amends the Internal Revenue Code, the provisions impacting HSAs, to allow for all telemedicine services to be considered HSA-compatible preventive coverage. So all telemedicine, all of it. So that is a huge, you know, shoehorn in there. And so, and again, I've been, I've been saying sort of the tail on this thing is really long and we can't really see totally around the corner and I could do some more jargon if anyone wants um, <laughs> around where all the impacts are going to be. But this is certainly one of them that will have lasting impact. Oh, can I just do my one weirdo yes. thing that you didn't want me to talk about? <laughs> yes, you're so this I thought was a completely bizarre add-in to the CARES Act. They basically have an amendment in there that provides that all menstrual care products are now reimbursable as a medical care expense from an HSA or health FSA, or heaven help you if you have an Archer MSA out there, which... (laughs) So represent whatever female lobby was working here. So anyway, I know the people in this room are happy. Okay, so... Oh, I had one oh, more. Yeah, one I had more. one more, and then we can move on from the CARES Act. Um, just a note that they are anticipating ahead for a COVID-19 uh, immunization, and they have provided that that will become immediately available uh, without cost sharing as a preventive service um, and will be rated A or B by the U.S. Preventive uh, Care Services Task Force. And so that, again, that folds up into the ACA where you are required to cover those preventive care services as designated by the task force mm-hmm. without cost sharing. There's usually a delay on when you provide them. No delay here. Right, exactly. So, okay, moving on. So that's the CARES Act. Uh, we have an alert on it if you want to know more about it. We'd like to switch at this point over to uh, the DOL and what it's been busy doing as it relates to the Families First Coronavirus Act. Um, First and foremost, I'd like to take a note here that there is delayed enforcement. They came out, I think, at the end of of last week, which is 72 days long, um, on... Um, they would delay enforcement for good faith compliance up through, I think it's April 17th, 18th? 17th, I think. 17th, yes. So 30 days after enactment, March 18th up through April 17th, provided that you are uh, making reasonable good faith efforts to comply with the act. So essentially it's just a little bit of a breather as you try and figure out how this applies and and how to administer it. Because with leaves, the devil's always in the details. So you have a little bit of breathing room. And then 
they released FAQs on a very practical point on the poster. Gosh, they've been so busy. They've been just churning out FAQs. They're killing me with FAQs. But the first one was the poster. So uh, basically, we know that under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, DOL was tasked with releasing a model poster within seven days of enactment. Um, So that was March 25th. They met that deadline. It was specifically supposed to address the new... Uh, COVID-19 paid sick leave provisions. It also addressed FEMLA. Just as an aside, FEMLA has its own notice requirements, so we think they were just kind of killing two birds with one stone or some other metaphor that doesn't involve killing an animal. (laughs) But with that poster, so poster is out. Everybody go put your posters up. Um, But they add a few really good FAQs. And again, we have an alert on this. But the FAQ that I really just wanted to call attention to was... um, hey, my workplace is closed and everybody's telecommuting. How do I post this notice? So we all know those notices that are in the copy room, the break room, It's you stick it on the wall. And they basically came out and said, you can satisfy this posting requirement either by emailing or direct mailing the notice to employees or, and this is a big one, posting it on your external or internal website. So that's something employers can at least just have as a good takeaway. Okay, cool. So... Now we're going to go on to sort of this growing, expanded set of DOL FAQs that deal with the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. There are a number of them. How many of them? Are there 36? 37. 37. So we're going to, we have an alert um, that is out on this. I don't, you know, anyway, it's out or it's coming out. And um, we really hit sort of what we think are are the main points that were, were helpful um, it wouldn't be Families First Coronavirus Act if I didn't talk about the 500-employee threshold. Uh, that threshold. <laughs> I've never been asked to count people so many times in my life. I know. So recall that when we're looking at um, the paid sick leave provision, we're looking... So again, if you have an operation and you have multiple entities, maybe you have multiple EINs, maybe you know whatever set of circumstances you have, sidebar, if you are a single operation with under or over 500 and that's it, you know, you can stop listening. But if you have multiple operations or entities, you're going to have to decide how to count those employees, whether you aggregate, disaggregate. And again, controlled group rules don't apply here in the way they do in the group health plan context for the sick leave provision. And, and, and hopefully they use two different standards. So this thank was you for that. very helpful. And we did see a lot of even law firms coming out thinking that the integrated employer test applied across the board. But um, now, if you can call it conventional wisdom, is that the joint employer test uh, applies in the paid sick leave. And that there's a there's a four factor test for each for both the paid sick leave, which is joint employer, and the FEMLA expansion is integrated employer. What I want the takeaway here for you guys to be, and we have talked about this quite a bit, is that where application of these rules are a little bit unclear, note that it's really again a facts and circumstances test. So and, and your risk is really when you decide to aggregate under those tests because that's where your risk is going to be in terms of, you know, not providing the leave where maybe it might be um, it might be applicable to you. And so, again, when there's a gray area, I don't think – I think most employers are pretty well clear on it. But if you're not, it's worth talking to employment law counsel if the result of your analysis is to, is to aggregate and then not – 
um, not provide the leave based on being over 500, 500 or more. Yeah, and I mean, to try and just keep this straight in my head, I always just kind of do these uh, dotted lines. So the paid sick leave provision rolls up to the FLSA, Fair Landers, uh, Labor Standards Enforcement Act, which uses a joint employment standard. That's really gray and wonky. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the FEMLA expansion rolls up into FEMLA. And FEMLA actually uses a, a joint employer test, but it also uses something called the integrated employer mm-hmm. test. So that's really where you're going to be focusing when you're talking about aggregating or disaggregating. Um, but yeah, these are really gray, really difficult. It would have been easier if they gave us a simpler counting mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to continue to be a point. And I should note too, we're expecting regulations on that point. We certainly hope that this isn't all we're going to see on that. I mean, we've seen them punt on stuff before, but hopefully the regulations will address this a little bit, um, a little bit more clearly. Okay. In addition, if we're talking about employer size at this point, um, is there a small business exemption for businesses with fewer than fifty employees who um, were providing the paid sick leave and the expanded FMLA would jeopardize the viability of the business? Uh, That will be addressed in forthcoming regulations. Um, We anticipate that that there will be, and they just make a note here in the FAQs that if you're going to to try and cite that particular um, exception, that you should document why compliance with these provisions would jeopardize the viability of the business just to be ready to document that and have access to that. So um, with that, let's move on. Well, one question I've gotten a lot, and it and to hear sort of DOL echo our prior answer, I was really kind of happy about. But basically the question was, can an employer deny this new paid sick leave under the Families First Act if it's already gave employees paid leave for reasons identified in the Act prior to the April 1 effective date of the Act? No. So for paid sick leave, what we are looking at is this is a new requirement, a new entitlement. It is, you know, for one moving forward. But this raises a really interesting... Do we want to talk about the FMLA? I, you know what? I really do not want to talk about the FMLA. Because we may have written something differently in an FAQ. Well, here's the problem. All of this stuff is new, and it's coming out fast, and it's coming out without great context. Mm -hmm. So the question, I think that, you know, when I first looked at a question where somebody asked me, what if I have an employee who already exhausted their traditional 12-week FMLA entitlement and now this new provision comes out, do they get another 12 weeks? And, you know, and my off the cuff was, well, this is new, probably. But then Chris and I did something really, really nerdy, which is statutory construction. <laughs> and we, we printed out, actually, you know, 29 USC. Statue. Yeah, yeah. What, 12, tw- And we looked at where this new provision folds in. And if they do not give us a clarifying amendment, it does look like if you exhausted all of your normal 12-week FEMLA, so your own serious health condition, family member mm-hmm. serious, you know, all yeah, the 12-week entitlements, you would not have more time for this. So that's... My example of that would be, let's say um, a woman had took FEMLA for eight weeks um, due to a pregnancy, and she's come back to work, and this she would have four weeks left. Yeah. That's it, under, under uh, this particular expansion. So... It would be nice to see some sort of confirmation of that, other than Diana and I doing, you know, our, our statutory construction. But we we think at this point that's how that works. And I think there's some other folks in the field who agree with that. Yeah. Um, 
And again, this is just sort of, it, it is fast changing. It's fast, yeah. Very fluid Absolutely. content. Um, Ooh, I want to hit something else before we go for it. Before we go on. Um, I get this question a lot. Is all leave under the FMLA now paid leave? No. Remember, this is only limited. It's only prescriptive or prospective, and it ends at the end of this year. Yeah. All the other stuff, unpaid. So I wanted to hit uh, something that the DOL clarified. And again, how the Families First Act was sort of passed and signed and all of that stuff, it went fast, so it's not perfect. Um, but one of the questions that come up it has come up has been, what are the record-keeping requirements? What kind of proof do employees need for proof of either the new paid sick leave or the expanded FMLA provision? And why this is really important is because if you're going to try and get a tax credit on the back end for this, you need to follow their record-keeping and documentation guidelines. And they're not really onerous, but what they did say is employers are required to get appropriate documentation supporting that this is a valid uh, reason for paid sick. And again, we got those six six reasons for paid sick. And the FEMLA expansion is just for, you know, basically school closures, childcare, emergencies due to the COVID crisis. So just important, do do that record keeping. Um, it's going to help you when you try and get that tax credit. Do you want to talk about what employees need to provide? Well, I mean, it can be anything. I mean, th- that's where they've been, you know, pretty flexible. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at expanded sick leave, it could be so uh, either a medical pr- care provider's quarantine mm-hmm. order or directive. It could be a governmental um, yep. self-isolation, stay-at-home order, whatever we're calling that. Uh, if you're talking about um, school closures for expanded FEMLA, it could be something from the website. It could be an email. But you just want to sort of paper that mm-hmm. file. And if it's your own medical condition, you're still under the medical certification rules of the FMLA, yeah? Yep. Okay. Um, so I'm going to shift focus to a couple of uh, FAQs I thought were interesting and very um, sort of representative of the fact that this is very much a whole new world that we're dealing with right now in this moment. And uh, the question was, when is an employee actually able to telework under the, the, uh, the Families First Coronavirus Act? And I find that personally a very relevant discourse. Because um, as we're all at home with our children, it's, it's a, a meaningful question. And so the DOL notes that you may telework when your employer permits or allows you to perform work while you are at home or at a location other than your normal workplace. So it's pretty broad. So then they follow up with a question that I actually think is, is helpful. What does it mean to be, to be unable to work, including telework, for COVID-19 related reasons? So you're unable to work if your employer has work for you, right? Whether it's at their their place or or teleworking, telecommuting, they have work for you to do. But one of the COVID-19 qualifying reasons set forth in the act prevents you from being able to perform that work. As Diana just said, there are six reasons. Um, you know, one applies to both of those leave provisions, which is you know you're you're caring for a child due to a school closure or, or daycare closure. Um, but if you and your employer agree that you're going to work your normal number of hours, but just outside of your normal schedule, so let's say you get up at five in the morning, I'm not saying this is what I have to do, but maybe it is, um, and work for some time and then work after everyone's been fed or whatever it is you have to do, then you are actually able to work and the leave is not necessary, um, unless 
you're otherwise prevented from working that way. So again, I think, and Diana noted, or Diana and I did, Diana, Diana didn't note this. We were having a conversation beforehand where there's a lot of stuff in these FAQs about being flexible about the work schedule, yeah? Yeah, and I think that's always a good guiding principle for our employers in, in the face of an emergency, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, you're going to talk about intermittent leave. <laughs> yeah, this was really, I mean, it's the it's the, the million-dollar question, and it's a lot of common sense, and it's the kind of same common sense that I hope Chris and I have been providing you with all along. But DOL really lines out um, whether or not it's okay to take either paid sick or expanded FEMLA intermittently. And there are two key things to remember there, and DOL really breaks this out. One is teleworking is very different than coming to a work site. And then just the guiding principle of your employer needs to agree to this. So uh, first and foremost, uh, can you take paid sick or expanded FEMLA while uh, intermittently while teleworking? Yes, you can if your employer lets you. Um, that is good, good, good to know. Uh, next, what about if you're at your usual work site? And DOL, again, common sense says, hey, generally no, but we're going to look at why you're taking the, the reason for the leave. If you are taking the paid sick and expanded FEMLA just as a result of a school closure and your employer agrees, yeah, that's probably just fine. But all of those other reasons for the paid sick leave basically have uh, you exposed to someone with COVID-19, and they're pretty clear. They're like, um, if, if you're caring for somebody who's sick or have symptoms yourself... Hey, don't um, come in here in the afternoon. Yeah, we, we <laughs> right. don't want you spreading that by coming in an off hour or for an hour in the morning and then touching all the coffee makers. <laughs> right, exactly. Again, not funny, but here we are. Um, okay, so and I, and I think that's that's important. And I, you know, administering an intermittent leave is always um, one of those really annoying, difficult things for um, for employers. So I think it's important to know that um, you have to allow that as an employer. Yeah, I mean that's how we read this FAQ. It could, it's anyway. Moving on. <laughs> well, and almost wrapping up, we've been through lots of FAQs today. You still, we still have a couple about the oh, closed work site. And then I, I have forgot. some other stuff. Coordination, my favorite topic. Oh, my gosh. It's, we're never wrapping up, are we? No, we're, all, we're close. Oh. Uh, and You've been I, wanting to talk about this one the whole time. No, you love this one. I did not <laughs> want to talk about this one. I saw that another section in the DOL FAQs talked about when you can and can't get this leave. And they basically come out and say, if your work site is closed... You do not get this leave. You're done. Yeah. If nope. you are furloughed, you do not get this leave. None of it. Because the whole premise of these two, the, the new paid sick leave and expanded FEMLA is that there is work available for you to do that you are unable to do because of a qualifying COVID-19 reason. So just keep that in mind. This is not going to rescue your furloughed employees. Exactly. Or where workplaces are closed. And I think that's a really important point. Um, it's, you know, I call it sort of like all of these are kind of high-class problems. If you have the work and, and you, you know, you can administer this, then you're probably in a lot better position than a, a lot of other organizations. So, um, but not to say that this isn't a total headache because, of course, um, it will be. Um, okay. I have some questions on, or I've, there's some issues on coordination. So how can you use, how can you coordinate paid sick leave with FEMLA and then the employer's PTO? These are always um, always questions we get a lot of because they're very pragmatic. And so I want to be clear that, remember, 
the first 10 days of the expanded FEMLA is unpaid. Now, those two overlap on one reason, right, um, to, to stay home and care for um, a child whose who's school or daycare place is closed. And so the, you can substitute that or you can sub in or get paid the paid sick leave for those first two weeks, 10 days during that period of time. So you can stack those two things. It's at two-thirds of the pay, right? But then the question is, can you use, and by you, can employers um, can employees use other PTO, employer-provided PTO, to what I would call top off and get to 100% where they're not otherwise being paid 100%? Remember, there are three reasons under sick pay for which they would be paid 100%, but where they aren't. And so I, there's a lot of this, a series of these questions in, um, in the FAQs if you want to look at them, but my takeaway is this. Employers cannot require or force an employee to take their PTO here. Okay, their other PTO. They can certainly permit employees to do that to get to 100% of their pay, but they can also deny them the ability to do that as well. And so this is framed up a bunch of different ways, and that was sort of my, my synthesized takeaway from it, is that as an employer, you cannot force them to take PTO under these circumstances. You can certainly permit to get them to 100%. You can also say, no, this is all you get under under uh, these particular provisions. So I think with that... Are we actually wrapping up now? We're actually wrapping up. <laughs> it's an egregiously long podcast, but we really did try and hit only the high points. And um, we thank you for your attention and stay well and healthy.